Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Weirdly enough, the first thing I want to do today is actually walk back some of the stuff that I was talking about last week. I very much emphasized last week that we were in this sort of ominous fourth act of Shakespeare sort of situation with all these characters rushing around and very ominous overtones to what was happening here. And I want to stress, now that we are actually seeing what is going on with Ivan, there's something pretty anticlimactic about all this. Like, as much as I had emphasized last time that we were in this titanic battle of good and evil for the sake of this town, that, you know, on the one hand you've got Rakuten and Ivan sort of putting these liberal and, you know, very con or self-conscious ideas into Dimitri's head, and Dimitri's sort of fighting it with the sort of Alyosha, Elder Zosima style of, like, self-guilt uh, and, and recognizing uh, that one is sort of guilty before everyone, and then sort of destroying oneself as, as in accordance with our thematic Bible verse here, that only a corn of wheat that falls to the ground will bear fruit. I want to stress that is happening here, but weirdly enough, it's downplayed in the second half of this section on Ivan Karamazov, which brings us back to that whole discussion that we had when we were talking about the Grand Inquisitor and the, the chapter on Rebellion and sort of Ivan's first big showing in this novel. We have to talk again about this whole role of Ivan in the academic discussion surrounding the brothers Karamazov. And again, I need to stress, like, in this 775-page novel, virtually 100 pages are devoted to Ivan, probably less than either Dmitri or Alyosha. Um, he is, as much as he is frequently the subject of constant debate about this book, relatively minor compared to the other characters here. But his struggle has been so interesting to so many people that he is sort of the focus of a lot of the discussions surrounding the Brothers Karamazov in general, and it seems that Ivan's sections are both the most popular and the most sort of academically studied and, and sort of dissected. Um, and like I said then, I want to sort of push back against that in our discussion of this section, especially here. Like, the Grand Inquisitor and Rebellion are in some ways, masterpieces in their own right. I am not going to deny that for a moment, although I do think that they are frequent, that by decontextualizing them, you lose a lot of what Dostoevsky is actually saying there. Here, though, it's significant that Dostoevsky is very deliberately making this section anticlimactic. Um, the, de the confrontation with the devil, exciting and tense as it might be, is at the end of the day a lot of nonsense anecdotes and a lot of foolishness, and at the you know, end of that section, the real takeaway here is how weak Ivan is, how small he is, how little his ideas mean, matter and mean anything compared to his own battle with his own brain. Um, as much as, you know, the, the sort of horror of Smerdyakov and his confession here and his implication that Ivan was involved sort of implies, um, it's very much defused, even before we get to it, by the fact that Alyosha, again, speaking with the sort of authority of God, tells Ivan that no, he is not guilty. Um, and I want to, again, sort of harp on this, just sort of bring this up and discuss it and confront it, if only because, like, I, I have been over the last couple of weeks reading Mikhail Bakhtin's um, The Problems of Dostoevsky's Poetics, and 
every time, every time that he brought up the Brothers Karamazov, he would stress that Ivan is the primary hero of the Brothers Karamazov, and every time I just felt like facepalming. No. No, he's not. And as much as the ideas that Ivan presents here are compelling and interesting, and as much as Bakhtin is absolutely right to point out that Ivan is wrestling with his own consciousness, that he has this polyphonic, uh, like, multi-voiced, multi-valenced consciousness, and that the conversation with the devil especially is him wrestling with himself very, very literally here, that doesn't mean that he is to be trusted. And that the struggles that he perceives to be struggles are necessarily problems outside of his own consciousness. What Dostoevsky seems to be sort of presenting to us, or at least how I read it, is that all of this is very much imaginary to Ivan. It is all a product of his fevered, deranged brain at this point in time. He is, in fact, sick. And that is that sickness that defines Ivan, not his intelligence. It is, the fact of his intelligence is that he thinks that he can overcome this sickness by sheer force of will. But as basically every other character in this novel has figured out at this point, that's not the way it works. As much as Ivan may in fact be one of our central heroes here, and I would at the end of the day say that Ivan is heroic, that Ivan is one of Dostoevsky's protagonists, and that Ivan does come away better for all, everything that has happened here, that's not to say that his consciousness is the defining characteristic of his goodness. All of the characters who practice this sort of liberal Europeanized thinking in this novel tend to be villains. Rakuten is going around like smearing poor Madame Koklikov in some trashy periodical called Rumors. Smerdyakov, in fact, murders his father. And Miusov is just a foolish idiot guy. Like, all of these characters really are not to be respected. Ivan, if he is to be respected, is supposed to be respected for overcoming this, not for his, you know, intellectual aspirations and, and his big ideas and his poetry and his self-consciousness and all that. It's interesting, for, from, Dost from our perspective, reading Dostoevsky, we should recognize this is a great artistic achievement, but we are not to emulate Ivan. Ivan's struggles are supposed to be distant from us, and Dostoevsky refuses to let us get too close to them without undermining them in some way. Even in The Grand Inquisitor and in Rebellion, it is Alyosha's job to sort of keep asking questions, keep getting to, you know, the problems that Ivan himself personally is having. Just as Zosima was very quick to point out, that Ivan's struggle is that he wants to believe and can't. And the only person, the only thing getting in Ivan's way is himself. There's no physical obstacle, there's no truly titanic battle going on here, there's no devil, even by Ivan's own estimation, though we might question that in our own right. But at the end of the day, it's just Ivan not being able to gain control of his own mind. And that's both significant and insignificant. It's tragic and it's just sad. Um, it is big and it is small. Like, we are also... The reason why Ivan is so frequently identified with is because there are so many people who do struggle with their own minds in this way. Whether we, you know, refer to it as some, like, issue of self-consciousness in some Sartrean existential sense, or whether we just see it as mental illness, depression. Um, either way, it is compelling to us. We 
identify with Ivan and his problems for this reason. But that doesn't mean that he's noble for it, or that we are. Um, Ivan, in all, for all intents and purposes, should have sought help, and didn't. And that's a failing on his part. It's sad, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's stronger for not seeking help, or for you know, trying to overcome these hallucinations and problems with the sheer force of his own will. Um, that's not how this works. Any therapist will tell you that. Um, so today I do, in fact, want to talk about everything that's going on here. And on the one hand, I know I've talked about this extensively in another lecture, like my typical Brothers Karamazov lecture that I do for my humanities class, it covers the devil in some significant detail here, and I will go over some of the same stuff. Um, but I do also want this to be different because we do, in fact, have the context to talk about here. Um, the chapter on the devil is fascinating, and I do want to talk about it in some detail. But most importantly, I want to put it in its proper context and sort of recognize everything that is going on around it, what it means in that context, and what it ultimately tells us about Ivan, about the other characters, and about this battle for this town's soul, if it tells us anything at all about it. Um, so obviously the first thing we need to talk about today is Smerdyakov. We have not one, not two, but three chapters of Ivan meeting with Smerdyakov, which for the most part have happened in the past. They've already occurred. The first two meetings with Smerdyakov occurred uh, respectively when Ivan originally arrived back in town, like when he finally got back from Moscow. And then, like, two weeks later, after Smerdyakov had been released from the hospital. The third meeting is in real time. It happens literally at, right after Ivan's confrontation with Alyosha at the end of the last section. And this is, of course, where things start to get particularly dark and interesting and dramatic. Um, but what we need to emphasize first with Smerdyakov is his character. We, have very, we haven't really seen much of Smerdyakov in this novel. Like, we saw him in his big speech, uh, we, we saw him in the original narrative description where we describe him as the son of Stinking Lizaveta, and we talk about his origins and how presumably Fyodor Pavlovich is, in fact, his father, though it isn't confirmed, and in fact, he is, like, this outcast. We talked about how he, you know, got sent off to France to become a cook and came back and is now sort of, like, quasi-intellectual, but also very much a nihilist, as we see in his discussion before Fyodor and Ivan, where he's talking about the, you know lie of this person's saintliness who sacrificed himself rather than convert to Islam. The only other time we've seen him up until now is when he in fact confronts Ivan and starts asking him, are you going to Chernyshaya or are you not going to Chernyshaya? And Ivan is sort of flustered by this. And the one time that Alyosha like stumbles across him while he's apparently making love to Maria Kondrashevna, like he's singing that song and apparently just so sort of trying to woo her, even though his heart does not seem to be in it. We've heard rumors about him. Like, we do know that he is the one who, you know, gave Ilyusha the idea of feeding the bread with the needle in it to poor the poor dog, um, Zhuchka, who, uh, you know, that apparently is the inciting incident that has caused Ilyusha to sort of, like, go into this uh, consumptive, delirious fit and is now sort of endangering his own life. We definitely should recognize that Smerdyakov is to some degree guilty of that. Um, we also should know that Smerdyakov is probably hanging out with Rakuten and some of the other negative characters in this novel. Like, there definitely seems to be some interaction there. We get hints here 
that apparently Smerdyakov and Katerina Ivanovna have been hanging out, although nobody ever, like, follows up on that. Nobody knows for sure whether this conversation happened. We're just sort of left in this situation. Um, but now we see him for sure, and now we get a complete, like, monologue, like... James Bond villain level monologue here describing exactly what is going on with Smerdyakov, why he was acting as cagey as he was with Ivan before, and what in fact his role is in the murder of Fyodor uh, Pavlovich. Namely, he did in fact murder him. Like, as much as we may have had doubts up until this point in the novel, we may have said to ourselves, you know, Dmitri does seem pretty stinking guilty. Like, Alyosha, as much as he clearly has faith in Dmitri, there's really not any great evidence. We didn't see whether or not Dmitri, in fact, killed his father. We only have his word to go on it. Nope, Smerdyakov is pretty proof positive the murderer here. He not only has a complete explanation for everything that has happened, he explains that he did, in fact, sham his original falling fit. Like, he didn't actually fall down the cellar stairs. He just acted like it in order to sort of clear the road so Dimitri could theoretically kill Fyodor. And then when Dimitri didn't do that, he killed him himself. He took the money. That was part of his intention the whole time, to take the money and therefore, you know, improve his prospects, go back to France, you know, become an enlightened and intellectual person. And this whole thing has, in fact, gone pretty flawlessly. Um, notice Smerdyakov at no point in this discussion shows any guilt, with the possible exception of the fact that he does, in fact, kill himself directly after his conversation with Ivan. As much as we do get a sort of point-blank, blasé description of everything that Smerdyakov has done until this point, there's very little in the way of editorializing or sort of self-awareness, which is really unusual in a Dostoevsky character. Like, again, we have sort of this very clear contrast between Smerdyakov on the one hand and Ivan on the other, where we are absolutely privy to every tiny thought that goes through Ivan's brain. We hear him debate with himself. He's uh, frequently sort of contradicting himself or questioning himself or raising objections to his own ideas um, in that classic Bakhtinian polyphonic way. Like, Ivan is absolutely, you know, an open book to us as the reader. But Smerdyakov is not. All we can sort of deduce about his character is what we've seen. And we've seen so little, and we've seen it so decontextualized that it's very hard for us to get a sense of who this character is, what is going on under the surface, why, how his self-consciousness is sort of affecting him, challenging those around him. Like, Smerdyakov, for all intents and purposes, is a plot cipher here. Um, Dostoevsky doesn't write villains very often. I should emphasize this. Like, crime and punishment is, you know, a cops and robbers battle, and we hang out with the robber as much as we hang out with the cops. And Raskolnikov, as much as he is a murderer, we follow him the whole way through, and he is the protagonist of the novel. Um, the closest we have to a legit villain in one of Dostoevsky's novels up until this point is probably... Pyotr Verkovensky in Demons. And even he isn't so much a villain as he is just a sort of busybody. Um, like, he's a monster. He absolutely has no scruples about his activities. He is totally willing to create scandal after scandal to inspire uprisings and to absolutely foist it all off on some toady when he gets the chance. He's 
evil, but he's not a villain. He's not a flat villain. He's got depth. He has self-consciousness that he's wrestling with. Dostoevsky is as interested in his psyche as any of the other characters. But here, Smerdyakov is not given a chance to defend himself. We just see him explain his guilt and then kill himself. If he was, in fact, wrestling with his own conscience, we don't see it. The closest instance that we ever get in this novel to maybe Smerdyakov does have a positive side, maybe Smerdyakov does have a sense of guilt, a conscience, is that moment when Fyodor Pavlovich, of all people, calls him out for being typically Russian. That even though he is absolutely willing to nihilistically, atheistically condemn this guy who has, you know, decided to, to like, die rather than convert to Islam, he, like, Smerdyakov admits there may possibly be somebody who has the grain of faith the size of a mustard seed that could theoretically move mountains and crush their adversaries. Fyodor Pavlovich calls him out on this, says, Smerdyakov, despite all of your nihilism, despite all of your pessimism, despite all of your evil, you still have a Russian soul. Um, even if you were deliberately going to be a bad person, you can't totally extirpate that from who you are. And remember that Smerdyakov feels chagrined about this. Like, Ivan agrees because Fyodor Pavlovich is doing his usual buffoonery thing. But at the end of the day, Smerdyakov resents him for this. It may be because Fyodor Pavlovich identified some spark of goodness in Smerdyakov that Smerdyakov felt so compelled to kill Fyodor Pavlovich in the first place. And notice that this is a problem that Ivan is facing too. Both, of, both Ivan and Smerdyakov are wrestling with the fact of their own conscience, consciences. Wrestling with the fact that they don't believe, theoretically, according to their ideas, their enlightened liberal values, they don't believe in morality. And yet, they cannot act immorally. Or when they do, it plagues them. It causes them to, to suffer. It causes them to act in a way that is that conforms to virtue and to having a conscience. They are not great enough to overcome their own goodness in many senses. And as much as we definitely see that transpire with Ivan, we can only sort of suspect that with Smerdyakov. Because the fact of the matter is that Smerdyakov's actions don't make sense if he is in fact as relentlessly evil as Dostoevsky sort of implies here, as relentlessly evil as we would expect from some sort of cartoonish Disney villain here. Like, Smerdyakov feels something. If he didn't, he wouldn't have gone into a falling fit directly after he had, in fact, murdered Fyodor Pavlovich, because he mentions this. He's like, okay, yeah, I shammed my original fit falling down the stairs, and then I was laying in bed pretending to be having my fit, and then once everybody was quiet, once Grigory had gone out of the house, once, you know, I suspected that it was time to, to sort of investigate the situation. I got up, I did in fact murder Fyodor Pavlovich, and then I went back to bed and had a real legitimate fit. So clearly Smerdyakov is affected by his actions. He is to some degree destroyed by them. Um, much like Raskolnikov, who thinks that he can get away with murder if he just acts intelligently afterwards, Smerdyakov seems to think that this is all for the best, that he can murder Fyodor Pavlovich and, you know, advance himself, but finds that, the, that this is something overpowering to him. And even that isn't necessarily an indication of guilt. Like, it is just troubling to him. 
Um, he is already sort of mentally fragile um, due to his epilepsy, due to his falling fits, his, his falling sickness. Um, so we see that this could just be trauma. Uh, not necessarily guilt, not necessarily suffering, but just, you know, he did a violent thing, it was overexertion, and therefore he fell into this fit. And chances are Smerdyakov is sort of recognizing that, sort of assumes that that is the case with him in the first conversation that he has with Ivan. Because notice, in the first conversation he has with Ivan, he lets nothing slip. We are in the same sort of veiled discussion mode that we were in back when Ivan was originally thinking of going to Chermyshaya or in the first place. And Smerdyakov is, you know, still hinting, still winking, still refusing to actually say anything as though there might be people listening and they might be overheard confessing that Smerdyakov had been planning to murder his father this whole time. But by the second conversation, he's already sort of degenerating. His mastermind villainousness is dropping. Um, in the second conversation, Ivan, you know, comes to talk about him, wants to, you know, follow up on some of the hints that Smerdyakov did in fact drop in their first conversation. And Smerdyakov goes into full confession mode. Um, he confesses that he did in fact do the deed, that he like was in fact goading Ivan into his into. Uh, into being complicit with him. He doesn't give us all the details, but he certainly gives Ivan this suspicion as though, you know, they were both complicit in this act, that Smerdyakov had in fact planned it the whole time. And then by this third time, when we in fact meet Smerdyakov, once the action of the novel has resumed, notice that he's gone. Like, there's no effort at mastering the circumstances. His situation is crap. He's apparently just lying in bed doing absolutely nothing, as though he was waiting for Ivan to show up all this time. He confesses boldly, like, we just get this long monologue, this is exactly how I did it, signed Smerdyakov, and then he literally hands over the money to Ivan for no good reason. Like, remember... Smerdyakov's whole plan was to murder Fyodor Pavlovich, who he knew that he was not going to get any part of the inheritance from, and get the 3,000 rubles, which he could then parlay into something else, some situation, going back to France, whatever. And Smerdyakov has given up on this. Um, apparently, over the course of these several months, between the first two meetings and the third, his condition has degenerated to the point that he has virtually no will to live. We are not talking about suicide as some ideological statement, the way that Ivan did, or the way that Kirillov does, and, and demons. No, he commits suicide because he's got nothing to live for. He is hopeless at this point in time. Um, and, you know, it is absolutely flying in the face of the plan that Smerdyakov originally had. If Smerdyakov was as relentlessly rational, as purely materialistic, as totally nihilistic, as he claims to be in so many other parts of this novel, presumably this would not bother him. He would get up and he would go to France and it would be like nothing ever happened. There would be no suicide. He would never have gone so far as to confess to Ivan. We would never see half of what's going on here. Dostoevsky seems to be suggesting that as much as Smerdyakov is presented to us as a straight villain with no depth, no context here, he is not able to bear that weight. Um, Dostoevsky cannot bring himself to believe that Smerdyakov is so inhuman, so monstrous, 
as to be able to do this thing and not feel some kind of guilt, even if it is totally beneath the surface, even if he refuses to admit that it's guilt, even if he only experiences it in the form of some sort of personal torment or personal suffering. Whatever it is, conscious, unconscious, whatever, Smerdyakov cannot sleep well, knowing what he has done, knowing that he has committed patricide. Um, Smerdyakov feels some kind of conscience, some kind of moral outrage at his own actions, and it ultimately claims his own life. Um, as Alyosha tells us at the very end of this section, Smerdyakov hangs himself. He has nothing to live for. And you very much get the sense here that Smerdyakov, as much as this does sort of fit into the plot of the novel as, you know, the last act ultimately damning Ivan and Dmitri to their respective fates, um, you very much get the sense that, like, Smerdyakov didn't do this for them. Smerdyakov, if in fact presented with, like, Ivan confessing against him, notice he's not scared of that. Um, he doesn't believe that ultimately Ivan's testimony would be compelling or convincing. Um, he would ultimately just respond in kind, talk about Ivan's own complicity in the murder, and as a consequence, feel that he was just the lackey in this situation, the, the servant, as, as he very much emphasizes here. He was just doing the bidding of his master. Um, so Smerdyakov feels no supposed guilt, certainly does not feel any danger of, of like being brought before the, the, tr the trial, being brought before the state, being punished, or uh, being like executed, or anything of that nature. He's not scared, it seems. Like, that could be a possible reason why he commits suicide. He sees that Ivan is, in fact, determined to confess. But it doesn't seem likely. The action far outweighs the the uh, the threat here. It seems more likely that if Smerdyakov was in fact totally 100% conscienceless, totally rational, his choice would be to take the money and run, not hand it over to Ivan and then kill himself. It seems much more likely that Smerdyakov was planning to commit suicide before Ivan showed up that he gave the money to Ivan because he didn't think he would need it, and that the confession to Ivan is not the last act of a desperate man, but the last act of a man with nothing else to lose. Smerdyakov is very much a villain here, is very much a demon in his own right, as far as Dostoevsky presents him. But even in his demonness, even in his monstrousness, he cannot go so far as to be guiltless. He cannot go so far as to act purely rationally in this situation, without the specter of his crime hanging over him. Um, which brings us to the sort of second issue here, namely Ivan's complicity. Um, that's the big question in this section. And it is a question that, again, we have already answered. Alyosha told us, with that you know very ominous sort of hint from Dostoevsky that he was speaking stuff that he didn't know and was, like again, prophetically giving us the mind of God here, we know that Ivan isn't guilty. We are told that Ivan isn't guilty by an extremely reliable source. Much as Alyosha shouldn't in any way know whether or not Ivan is guilty, exactly how guilty he in fact is, or for that matter, that Ivan has in fact been tormenting himself, asking himself the question, am I guilty? Alyosha has some sort of supernatural insight here. We have seen this happen before. We are at least 
by the structure of this novel and by the evidence that we've given before, inclined to believe Alyosha here. Um, but Ivan, Ivan doesn't. And the big question throughout these three confrontations with Smerdyakov, or at least the big question that hangs over Ivan's head and the big question that hangs over the reader's head is, was this intentional? Did Ivan, in fact, like, intentionally and deliberately, so to speak, give Smerdyakov the go-ahead? Um, tell, like, through his very veiled references and his acceptance of going to Chermashaya, did he, in fact, tell Smerdyakov to go ahead and murder his father, and does that necessarily make Ivan culpable as well? And the, the way that this is described, like, I have seen many writers sort of approach this as though these first, these three meetings with Smerdyakov is the way that Ivan is convinced of his own culpability, his own guilt. Like, Bakhtin himself says that, you know, each stage of this conversation, each meeting with Smerdyakov makes Ivan a little bit more self-aware of his own complicity. And the implication here is that Ivan has the sort of Freudian psycho psychology that he has, like his conscious desires and his unconscious desires, and his desire to kill his father was an unconscious desire, and therefore Smerdyakov was speaking directly to Ivan in these, these veiled forms so he could access his unconsciousness rather than his consciousness. And as a consequence, like Ivan is in fact unconsciously guilty. He in fact did make these decisions unconsciously, and his conscious mind has some how been left out of the loop. Um, this is a fairly complicated and fairly 19th century psychological approach, but it's also one that Dostoevsky seems to be to some degree pushing back against here. Like, it's pretty rare for Dostoevsky to talk about conscious and unconscious desires and for us to talk about, like, repression and all of that in a Dostoevsky novel. Most of the characters are aware of what they're doing, even if it doesn't necessarily make sense to them at any given moment. And a lot of Ivan's behavior here does kind of conform to this. Ivan has, throughout the chapter where Smerdyakov originally confronts him about going to Chermashaya, he acts erratically in ways that he himself does not necessarily understand. And here again, we see Ivan acting erratically, behaving in ways that he himself doesn't seem to understand. But on the one hand, we're sort of left asking, so how culpable is Ivan then? How much does Ivan not actually appreciate what's going on? How much did he tacitly or otherwise accept this? And how much of this is Smerdyakov reading into Ivan's reactions and Ivan's interactions with him? Because let's consider the evidence here. On the one hand, when Smerdyakov originally confronts Ivan, go to Chermishnaya, that way you won't be far away if, in fact, this big catastrophe happens, Notice Ivan does in fact say he's going and then goes to Moscow anyway. And in fact it's this big deal that like we're, we're told throughout this passage that when he in fact got to Moscow it was five days before he even heard that his father had been murdered. Um, for four days he's bustling about doing his business and when they try and reach Ivan, they try to reach him at Chermishnaya, they can't reach him there because he's not there, he never went to Chermishnaya. Um, and they try and reach him in Moscow, but they don't know where to reach him in Moscow. So instead they give the information to Katerina Ivanovna, and Katerina Ivanovna sends the message to like her relatives, expecting that Ivan would visit them at some point during his visit. And he does, in fact, visit them four days after he arrives in Moscow, at which point they tell him, your father's been murdered, and he rushes home. 
This is not the behavior of someone expecting bad news, consciously or unconsciously. Um, Ivan did in fact go to Moscow, not Chermishnaya, either because he cared so little about his father that he, you know, did not bother to check in with, with Smerdyakov, even though he supposedly knew that Smerdyakov like, had, would in fact go on and ensure that his father was killed by Dmitri or by himself. Or, this is all part of an elaborate, like, diabolical plan on Ivan's subconscious's part to, like, hide out and, you know, make it look like he's less guilty than he actually is. Or what seems most likely here is he really didn't know. He thought it was all foolishness. He didn't understand the hints that Smerdyakov was laying down. Um, we get that chapter title, It's Always Interesting to Speak to an Intelligent Man, and Smerdyakov repeats it through these conversations several times, the idea being that he was just hinting to Ivan because that would preserve both of their culpability. Um, on the one hand, we could read this as Ivan is, on some subconscious level, taking in what Smerdyakov is laying down and giving him permission through his actions, on the other hand, we're sort of led to believe Ivan doesn't know what's going on. Ivan doesn't understand what Smerdyakov is trying to hint to him. Ivan sort of is frustrated by all of this. Now, on the other hand, we do in fact see Ivan hate his father and hate his brother. Like, throughout the, the chapters where he is in fact spending time with Fyodor Pavlovich and getting sort of pestered by Smerdyakov's questions, Ivan expresses on several occasions, intentionally to himself or, you know, through his actions, that he is disgusted by both Dmitri and by Fyodor. And we see here in this section as well that Ivan admits this to himself. He thinks Dmitri is just a boor, an idiot, a, like, passionate fool who, you know, can't control himself the way that Ivan has trained himself to over the course of his entire life. Um... We've seen Ivan absolutely poo-poo Fyodor's various buffoonish activities, whether it's, you know, kicking Maximov out of the carriage at the very beginning of this novel, or talking about how loathsome their conversations are, or even as he confesses here, you know, actually actively hating his own father. We do recognize that he is guilty in that sense, in the same way that Dmitri is guilty of wanting his father dead. Ivan is guilty of wanting his father dead. But the desire and the actual act of murder are, as Dmitri would be quick to emphasize, not the same thing. Like, Dmitri very much says, I should go to Siberia. I deserve to go to Siberia because I wanted to kill my father. But he also very much insists and very much demands Alyosha's conviction that he didn't actually. That there was, in fact, a line here. He is guilty before his father and God of the murder in his mind. But at the same time, he recognizes that it is to his credit that he did not in fact do the deed. Ivan is kind of in the reversed position here. On the one hand, Ivan did in fact want his father dead, much like Dmitri did, and didn't in fact kill his father the way that Dmitri did. But where Dmitri insists on that difference, Ivan, if anything, insists on the contrary. Ivan insists that he is guilty when, in fact, as Alyosha has pointed out and as the facts of the case seem to suggest, he wasn't guilty. 
much as Smerdyakov is very quick to sort of bring Ivan into his complicity, as much as Smerdyakov blames Ivan for the decision here, Ivan himself seems to be pretty freaking oblivious. Um, he is not aware of his own complicity, and Smerdyakov even admits this at one point. Like, I believe it's in the third visit, Smerdyakov can, like, recognizes that Ivan is apparently totally oblivious, didn't in fact get the message, and Smerdyakov is like, okay, well, I guess you are less intelligent than I in fact expected. I would have expected more from you, Ivan. And I want to kind of stress this. This is more typical of Dostoevsky in relations here, the miscommunication. The fact that Smerdyakov, with all of his plots and his intelligent speaking and his veiled references, ultimately fails to communicate to Ivan the, the sort of tenor of his thought, the fact that this is, in fact, a murder plot. This is way more typical of Dostoevsky characters than this sort of subconscious, like, Freudian, repressed notion of what we actually are accomplishing here. Um, lots of people will read this as Ivan, in fact, being guilty. But I think Dostoevsky is inclining to a tragic miscommunication. And for that matter, a tragic miscommunication that leads to violence and death. Um, this is what happens in Demons. This is what happens in Crime and Punishment. This is very similar to those acts of violence that are perpetrated there. Reading Smerdyakov and Ivan as being in cahoots on some subconscious level is kind of reading against the grain of the text here. It's an acceptable reading. The text supports such a reading, but I don't think it's the one that Dostoevsky is most strongly suggesting here. Uh, Ivan doesn't seem to be aware of his own guilt. He doesn't seem to be aware of what Smerdyakov is in fact going to do when in fact Ivan goes to Moscow, and not Chermishnaya, I might emphasize. He does not seem to be aware of what Smerdyakov intends or suggests or sort of like expects Ivan to be complicit in when he in fact says that he hates his father, when he in fact feels this guilt. Ivan recognizes that if Smerdyakov is guilty, then Ivan too is guilty, but that's not necessarily right. At no point in this novel have we seen Ivan, in fact, intentionally want his father dead, or at least take action that would sort of move towards the murder of his father. He is way less guilty than Dmitri in that sense, because Dmitri at least beat the crap out of his dad at one point. Ivan has never done anything like that. Ivan has hated his father, and Ivan is, you know, sort of despised wishing his father dead, but that's not the same as being complicit in the murder. Um, as much as uh, as much as Ivan sort of accepts this responsibility, as much as Ivan is convinced that he is in fact guilty, he really isn't. And it seems more likely that Smerdyakov is either sort of bringing Ivan into the murder out of some sort of nihilistic desire, like he, much as he did with Ilyusha, he sort of makes Ivan complicit in a crime that Ivan himself was not guilty of. Um, Smerdyakov with Ilyusha planted the suggestion, you know, feed this needle to the dog and thus cause suffering, something that Smerdyakov, you know, sort of apparently gets a kick out of, seeing these people torment themselves with their own crime. 
likewise, Smerdyakov is trying to say here, you know, Ivan, you put me onto this. You are the one who suggested it. You gave me permission when you said that you were going to Chermishnaya, even if you didn't. Um, but on the other hand, you also get the sense through these speeches that Smerdyakov is trying to evade culpability in his own right. He was just the servant, he keeps insisting. Ivan was the mastermind. And if, in fact, brought before a court of law, Smerdyakov is convinced that every bit of evidence that Ivan could bring against Smerdyakov, i.e., you know, Smerdyakov was, in fact, guilty, and Smerdyakov did, in fact, present this confession, and Smerdyakov did, in fact, have the money, Ivan, like Smerdyakov responds, you know, you can tell them all you want. At the end of the day, I can tell them that you agreed to this by tacitly agreeing to go to Chermishnaya, that you are, in fact, the commander here. And I think Smerdyakov really does want to believe this, really wants to sort of put his own culpability off. Whether or not we take this as Smerdyakov the nihilist, you know, wrecking Ivan's life out of spite, or Smerdyakov the guilt-ridden, sort of desperately grasping for some straw to justify his own behavior and, like, move the guilt from himself to Ivan. Either way, that seems pretty likely. More likely than, again, Ivan being on some level that we are not privy to, aware and culpable of his father's death. But we do need to emphasize here one more sort of hiccup, one more complication to this whole interpretation where Ivan is, in fact, as innocent as Alyosha seems to believe and seems to insist. And that is, we have to take Dostoevsky's own situation into account here. Um, for the most part, I've been really careful to avoid psychological readings of this novel and sort of bringing in Dostoevsky's own thinking, Dostoevsky's own behavior. Like, it's come up a couple of times where I've emphasized that, like, Dostoevsky was very aware of, you know, what it felt like to be prepared to die soon, you know, standing in front of the scaffold expecting to be executed, and how that informs both Dimitri's sort of insistence that he's going to commit suicide the next day when he takes off from Makroya, as well as to some degree what Smerdyakov is going through here and what Ivan says when he says that he's going to kill himself when he turns 30. Um, all of that is a decent psychological read and probably, you know, we should be interested in Dostoevsky's own past, insofar as Dostoevsky is consistently interested in these ideas. But more importantly for what we're talking about today, Dostoevsky also felt a sort of indirect guilt and culpability in his own father's murder. And this one is going to take a little bit of untangling. The way that this went down... Um, Dostoevsky's mother died when Dostoevsky was very young. Uh, Dostoevsky's father went and became a landowner in, again, one of the Russian provinces, much as Fyodor Karamazov would have. Um, and Dostoevsky, as a student, consistently kept asking his father for money. Dostoevsky was, has always been bad with money in his life. This is like consistent throughout his entire life. As a teenager and as a young adult during his studies at the uh, studying engineering, um, he constantly felt that he was, you know, poorer than the rest of the students at these, you know, major St. Petersburg universities. Um, he constantly felt that he had to sort of keep spending money in order to like show off to his friends and, and show off his own um, sort of decency and, and noble lineage and upbringing. Um, and so he was constantly pestering his father for more and more and more money. Uh, now, 
as it happened several years into this process, several years after Dostoevsky had constantly been pestering his father for money, um, the news reached Dostoevsky that the peasants of his father's estate had in fact revolted, overthrown Dostoevsky's father, and murdered him. And Dostoevsky felt that the reason why that was the case was because his father was in fact in particularly dire straits, didn't have the money that he kept sending to Dostoevsky, and as a consequence, Dostoevsky's own greed and avarice directly contributed to his father's insolvency, the peasants' uprising, and his father's murder. Um, Dostoevsky sees himself as guilty, and writes about this often in his own personal correspondence. Um, this is something that haunted Dostoevsky, um, and Ivan's own sort of is he complicit, is he not complicit questionableness here definitely reflects Dostoevsky's own struggles and his own questions on the exact same subject. Now I should stress, from a historical perspective, from the perspective of, you know, Joseph Frank and his biography, that's not how it went down. Like, Dostoevsky's father probably wasn't murdered by peasants, and if he was murdered, it was unrelated to his insolvency, for sure. Um, the history is apparently a little tricksy here, but it seems more likely that Dostoevsky's father died of a heart attack at the same time as this sort of revolt was going, was sort of, like, percolating, and the rumors surrounding his death by, you know, dodgy means ended up reaching Dostoevsky through a couple of neighbors who honestly didn't have Dostoevsky's best intentions in mind. It's a convoluted, weird story, and it sounds like nobody has really got the actual answer for what, in fact, happened here. Suffice it to say that Dostoevsky felt guilty for his father's death, and probably shouldn't have. And at least at this stage, in the 1880s, when Dostoevsky has lived with this guilt and lived with this apparent complicity for the better part of 40-50 years, Dostoevsky probably had made peace with it in a way that Ivan simply has not. So we need to be aware of this when we read into Ivan's situation. On the one hand, we could see Dostoevsky sort of writing his own guilt into this novel, presenting Ivan as a sort of author insert character, and sort of describing Ivan's feelings of complicity of the murder of his father comparably with Dostoevsky's own feelings of complicity with murder uh, in the murder of his father. But we also need to recognize that that interpretation can cut both ways here. On the one hand, Dostoevsky himself may very well have made peace with it, may very well have overcome his initial guilt and his initial feelings of complicity. And therefore, when he writes Ivan's character, the suggestion here is not he is a stand-in for Dostoevsky, and Dostoevsky is absolutely putting all of his own personal like doubts and feelings of guilt onto Ivan's own character. Um, on the other, on the that hand, it could just as easily be Dostoevsky recognizing what he felt like when he was Ivan's age, though at a distance that is now sort of tempered his own expectations. Dostoevsky could be channeling his own personal guilt into Ivan, or he could be channeling the guilt he felt when he was younger and has now overcome. Ivan could be a stand-in for Dostoevsky as he is now, writing the Brothers Karamazov, 
or he could be a stand-in for Dostoevsky's youth, which Dostoevsky now understands which a, with a much more enlightened perspective. Dostoevsky no longer takes responsibility for his father's murder, but recognizes that as a young person it was easy to fall into that trap. He could be correcting his young self here by writing Ivan as a traumatized, suffering, guilt-ridden person who is guilt-ridden inappropriately, who does not actually have any complicity in his father's death. So again, it's complicated. The, the text here supports multiple possible readings, depending on whose word you take as authoritative. But as I stressed, I tend to think Alyosha is the most authoritative source here. And that Alyosha's quasi-prophetic speech, like, remember, Ivan himself recognizes, calls Alyosha a prophet, and rejects him on the grounds that he doesn't want prophecy. That, remember, Ivan's whole perspective is not that he doesn't believe in God, but that he rejects God. Um, that he doesn't want to believe in God, even as he, like Smerdyakov, accepts the possibility of someone who has faith enough to move mountains. Um... Ivan rejects the morality of God, not necessarily the existence of God. He wants to reject the existence of God on the grounds that this God couldn't be moral, but finds himself unable to do so. So, it's tricky. This question, is in fact Ivan guilty of his father's murder, and if so, how much? Is he in fact like on some level, consciously or unconsciously, complicit in Smerdyakov's murder? is not an easy question to resolve here. And what I really need to stress is how this question would logically be resolved in the course of the text. Like, keep in mind, as much as we're sitting here debating back and forth, is Ivan guilty, is Ivan not guilty, that question evaporates the second the devil shows up. And I really need to stress this. Like, we have these, this sort of mounting tension between Ivan and Smerdyakov in each of these three conversations. This mounting sense of Ivan's guilt, first through the veiled references of Smerdyakov in the first reading, then the more direct references in the second meeting, and then with Smerdyakov's full confession in the third meeting, where Smerdyakov specifically says, you know, I thought I had the go-ahead from you, whether or not you were confused, whether or not you believed that you were wrong, and in some sense, Ivan is, as a consequence, guilty. Whether or not Ivan caught the references, whether or not Ivan knew what he was doing, Smerdyakov basically says, Ivan, I acted because you acted. Your ignorance doesn't matter in this case. Whether or not you believed you were guilty, whether or not you were intentionally guilty, now you are guilty. Because you did what I told you to do, even if we did miscommunicate, even if we did misunderstand. So on some level, Ivan is straight up guilty. He did the thing which caused Smerdyakov to do the thing. But that does not imply intention, and that definitely does not imply guilt in the sense of, I wanted to murder my father and took steps to make sure that that happened. It is guilt in the same way that a person who steps out of the way of a bullet is guilty of the person's death who the bullet hits. Ivan did not intend for this person to die, but through Ivan's actions, the person died anyway. 
Whether or not we should see this as Dostoevsky reading his own character, again, there are so many layers here, and honestly, at the end of the day, ironically enough, if I were to say Dostoevsky does have an author insert character in this novel, and Dostoevsky does seriously identify with one of the characters, I suspect it wouldn't be Ivan. Weirdly enough, I suspect that it would be Fyodor. In part because Dostoevsky does in fact name Fyodor after himself, which should be a pretty dead giveaway, at least on some superficial level, but also because when, in fact, we see Ivan struggling with all this, notice that Ivan himself and Smerdyakov both connect Ivan to his father. They both point out that Dmitri is much less like Fyodor than Ivan is. Ivan is the one with the crazy ideas. Ivan is the one with the big buffoonish fantasies that the devil keeps bringing up. Ivan is the one who sort of recognizes his own guilt and torments himself with it, much as Fyodor himself did. Ivan is the one who covers up his own sort of insecurities and his own fears with intelligence and talk. That's a absolutely what Fyodor is doing, it's just that Ivan is much more talented at turning it into something socially acceptable, rather than Fyodor, who emphasizes his own self-consciousness and destroys himself in public to get ahead of the people who would make fun of him. On some level, Dmitri doesn't do any of that. Dmitri just does what he does. He feels his passions and he follows them, and damn the consequences. He absolutely disgraces himself in front of others for no more reason than he feels like he needs to do that in the circumstances. That's not Fyodor's M.O. Fyodor's M.O. is, I am trapped in my own mind, I make fun of myself with ridiculous stories, I make myself look ridiculous, in order to cover up for the fact that I, in fact, feel very concerned and very self-conscious and very insecure. Ivan is doing the exact same thing, but making himself out to be greater than everybody else in the room, rather than making himself out to be lesser than everybody else in the room. And both Ivan and Smerdyakov and the devil, to some degree, all pick up on this. And to some degree, we should recognize Fyodor Dostoevsky sees himself as much in Fyodor Karamazov as he does in Ivan Karamazov. Ivan's sense of self-guilt is something that Dostoevsky himself just probably at this point overcame. What Dostoevsky didn't overcome is the fact that he is super self-conscious, and he is full of doubts, and he does get ahead of himself. He is not an intellectual with, like Ivan. He puts that behind him. What he is is a buffoon like Fyodor. Every ridiculous interaction he's had with someone, every time that he's flown off the handle and tried to make it out to be intelligence or pride or hubris or whatever, that reads like Fyodor. And many, many scholars have kind of gone out of their way to say, is Fyodor Karamazov in fact Dostoevsky's dad? No. <laughs> Dostoevsky's dad was a sober-minded, sedate, perhaps even authoritarian source in Dostoevsky's life. He was the picture of self-control. There is no way on God's green earth that Dostoevsky was pulling primarily from his own father to describe Fyodor and therefore putting himself in the role of Ivan. No, I think Fyodor Karamazov is a fusion of the worst parts of Dostoevsky's own character, like the things that he most hates about himself, combined with the authority that he saw his father wield. Um, 
It's complicated. It's always complicated. Anytime that you talk about where a writer's inspiration or sources come from, you will inevitably end up in the realm of complicated speculation for endless amounts of time, which is part of why academia likes to do it so much. You can never actually come to a straight answer. Um, but if you ask me straight out who is the author insert character here, I would go with Fyodor, not Ivan. Much as I think that Ivan is informed by Dostoevsky's own experiences, and you better believe every character in this novel is informed by Dostoevsky's own experiences, his own identity, his own sort of self-awareness, like all of that is in all of the characters. It's just parceled out amongst them. If you wanted to put, if you wanted to talk about like who is the person that Dostoevsky most identifies with, I bet it would be Fyodor. He wants to be Alyosha and isn't. He sees himself being Dmitri sometimes, but that's not who he is in Toto. He recognizes tendencies of Ivan in himself, but Ivan, again, is the life he left behind when he went to jail, when he cut ties with the Verkovensky group, when, in fact, he outgrew his European ideals. Fyodor is what Dostoevsky sees himself as in his darkest moments. Uh, but that, again, is speculation, and we should take it with the necessary grain of salt. What I want to emphasize here is that while Ivan's big question, is he in fact complicit or not, is the dominant question that we're asking in those chapters about Smerdyakov, the answer is not clear. It is not some kind of Freudian, Ivan, you know, is in fact tacitly aware of this on some level. I really don't think we have the support for that. But importantly for this novel, it's not important for us to know. Again, the way that you would expect this to work out, again, working from that Shakespearean four-act or fourth-act structure, or working from this sort of like psychological novels, people coming to realize their own intentions the way that it is awfully sort of scripted in Dostoevsky and other writers of the kind, you would expect these three chapters would be this mounting up to Ivan's self-realization. Ivan's giant confession, Ivan's sort of realization that, yes, he was in fact guilty, yes, it is in fact revealed, but that's not what happens. Like, let's look at this chapter with the devil, the nightmare of Ivan Fyodorovich, the way that it is framed, the way that it is presented, the content of it, and exactly what it means for Ivan's psychology. And notice, for the entire 20-some pages of this chapter on the devil, or rather 15 pages, I suppose, in our Peter and Karamat or Peter and Balakonsky edition, it's not brought up any at any point. Like, never. We do get this resolution, and the resolution is actually more important to what happens here. Like, let's look at this third meeting with Smerdyakov and the way that it's framed here. Um, yes, in fact, we do get Smerdyakov's confession. It's very dramatic. It's very important. You know, Smerdyakov is, like, in one way or another, trying to draw Ivan into complicity for this. But it's framed by this drunk dude. Uh, let's look at the opening of Chapter 8. He was only halfway there when a sharp, dry wind arose, the same as early that morning, and fine, thick, dry snow began pouring down. It fell on the earth without sticking to it. The wind whirled it about, and soon a perfect blizzard arose. We have almost no street lamps in the part of town where Smerdyakov was living. Ivan Fyodorovich strode through the darkness without noticing the blizzard, finding his way instinctively. His head ached, and there was a painful throbbing in his temples. His hands were cramped. He could feel it. 
Some distance from Maria Kondrashevna's house, Ivan Fyodorovich suddenly met with a solitary drunk little peasant in a patched coat, who was walking in zigzags, grumbling and cursing, and then would suddenly stop cursing and begin to sing in a hoarse, drunken voice, Ah, Vanka's gone to Petersburg, and I'll not wait for him. Now, it's significant that he says that the song is about Vanka going somewhere and we're not going to wait for him. It reminds Ivan strongly of his own decision to go to Moscow, despite what is ever, whatever is happening with his father, despite whatever insinuations Smerdyakov was making back when Smerdyakov was, you know, interacting with Fyodor and Ivan earlier in the novel. So we definitely get this sort of pang of guilt here, this, again, reminder that Ivan is thinking through his own culpability, is worried that he is, in fact, guilty of his father's death. But at the same time, notice the interaction with the, the drunk peasant. He stopped each time at the second line, again began cursing someone, and then struck up the same song again. Ivan Fyodorovich had long been feeling an intense hatred for him, before he even thought about him, and suddenly he became aware of him. So notice we do have a certain amount of subconscious and unconsciousness going on here. Like, Ivan feels this hatred even if he isn't consciously aware. He is working on these multiple levels. I recognize that. But notice, he at once felt an irresistible desire to bring his fist down on the little peasant. Just at that moment, they came abreast of each other, and the little peasant, staggering badly, suddenly lurched full force into Ivan. The latter furiously shoved him away. The little peasant flew back and crashed like a log against the frozen ground, let out just one painful groan, oh, and was still. Ivan stepped up to him. He lay flat on his back, quite motionless, unconscious. He'll freeze, Ivan thought, and strode off again to Smerdyakov. So here we have a parallel situation to the one that Ivan specifically had when he abandoned his father. We have a peasant who is drunk and in danger, and we get a specific reminder, a specific connection to Ivan's decision to abandon Fyodor. We get Ivan's unconscious desire to do violence to this peasant. And then, in fact, the opportunity arises. He flings him away, and the peasant is sprawled out into the snow, and Ivan leaves him there. We basically left this guy to die in this blizzard. But notice that's not the end of the story here. When, in fact, he's coming home from Smerdyakov's, we get another paragraph. The blizzard was still going on. He walked briskly for the first few steps, but suddenly began staggering, as it were. It's something physical, he thought, and grinned. It was as if a sort of joy now descended into his soul. He felt an infinite firmness in himself, the end to his hesitations, which had tormented him so terribly all through those last days. The decision was taken. And now will not be changed, he thought with happiness. At that moment, he suddenly stumbled against something and nearly fell. Having stopped, he made out at his feet the little peasant he had struck down, who was still lying in the same spot, unconscious and not moving. The blizzard had all but covered his face. Ivan suddenly pulled him up and took him on his back. Seeing light in a cottage to the right, he went over, knocked on the shutters, and when the tradesman who owned the house answered, asked him to help him carry the peasant to the police station with the promise that he would give him three rubles at once for it. The tradesman got ready and came out. I will not describe in detail how Ivan Fyodorovich then managed to achieve his goal and get the peasant installed in the police station and have him examined immediately by a doctor, while he once again provided liberally for the expenses. I will say only that the affair took him almost a whole hour but Ivan Fyodorovich was left feeling very pleased. His thoughts were expanding and working, 
If my decision for tomorrow had not been taken so firmly, he suddenly thought with delight, I would not have stayed for a whole hour, arranging things for the little peasant. I would simply have passed him by, and not cared a damn whether he froze. I'm quite capable of observing myself, incidentally, he thought at the same moment, with even greater delight, and they all decided I was losing my mind. As he reached his house, he stopped all at once under a certain question. And shouldn't I go to the prosecutor right now at once and tell him everything? He resolved the question by turning towards his house again. Tomorrow, everything together, he whispered to himself. And strangely, almost all his joy, all his self-content vanished in a moment. And as he entered his room, something icy suddenly touched his heart like a recollection, or rather like a reminder, of something loathsome and tormenting that was precisely in that room now, presently, and had been there before. Notice the interaction here. Notice how Ivan transforms his consciousness over the course of just this one paragraph. When he leaves Smerdyakov, he has decided. He is going to confess, he is going to bring Smir or he is going to like tell the prosecutor about Smerdyakov, he is going to basically exonerate his brother through his own testimony and Smerdyakov's testimony, and if in fact Ivan is guilty, so be it, who cares, doesn't matter anymore, he has done his confession, and like Dmitri, he has killed himself, fallen to the ground, and now can bear fruit. And notice that he is exuberant in this decision. Having decided to confess, having decided to accept responsibility for his own complicity in the murder, even though, as we're told by Alyosha, he isn't in fact guilty, just as Dmitri accepts complicity in his father's murder, accepts the guilt even though he is not guilty, when Ivan does this, the joy overtakes him. And in this state, he actively goes out of his way and performs virtually the same act that we see in the story of the Good Samaritan i.e. he finds this peasant who earlier he had abandoned, had even like sort of thrust him into the snow, and he saves him. He picks him up, drags him over to somebody, pays so he can go to the police station, pays for a doctor, pays to see that he's taken care of, pays to make sure that this person survives the night. He does a good deed. He basically engages in an act of virtue, something that he wouldn't have done. He explicitly makes this connection if he hadn't resolved to talk to the prosecutor about it. But then we see this moment of hesitation. Maybe I should go to the prosecutor right now, Ivan thinks. And we know now that this is the right decision. We're told at the end of this section that because Smerdyakov killed himself, nobody is going to believe Ivan anymore. They'll all think that Ivan is just pinning it on the suicide. You know, a totally victimless crime here. There is no one to corroborate his evidence. There's no Smerdyakov to, to sort of, like, present his own confession. Um, there's no dispute to be had there. There's no Smerdyakov trying to cast suspicion on Ivan himself, which, notice, that's what Smerdyakov said he was going to do. If Ivan testified against Smerdyakov, Smerdyakov is not going to say, no, I didn't do it. He's going to say, no, Ivan made me do it, i.e. totally exonerating Dmitri in either case. Smerdyakov will admit to his component of the crime, but he will not accept responsibility for it. Either way, Dmitri's off the hook. Now it's a discussion between who is more guilty, Smerdyakov or Ivan. And honestly, we all know, again, Alyosha keeps telling us, Smerdyakov is guilty, not Ivan. 
Dmitry believes this, Alyosha believes this, Smerdyakov has himself confessed it, and we've even had the conversation to indicate that really it was just a miscommunication at the end of the day. Smerdyakov thought Ivan was more intelligent than Ivan actually was. But here at this moment, he says, I should go to the prosecutor right now, but doesn't. And because he doesn't, the whole thing is ruined. And on some level, Ivan knows this. Consciously, unconsciously, whether God told him or otherwise, whatever, immediately his joy evaporates. And in return, what we get is this confrontation with the devil. Now, it's kind of hard to figure what the heck this chapter is doing, contextually speaking. The devil shows up out of nowhere, like we do get notices from Ivan at other points in the novel, like when he's talking to Alyosha, when Alyosha says, you know, you've been tormenting yourself, believing that you were guilty for father's death. Ivan says, you've been talking to him, and the very him that he's talking about is this devil, this hallucination. Like the devil even picks up on it, is like, hey, you literally told Alyosha about me, so clearly you do believe me on some level. And Ivan's like, it was temporary, it was just, you know, passing, like I don't actually believe in you. But again, as much as you would expect, the devil would show up and be like, you killed your father, you are guilty of Fyodor's... It doesn't even come up. At no moment does this occur. And on the one hand, we can read this as the devil is smarter than this. The devil knows that if he shows up and immediately accuses Ivan, as a consequence, you know, Ivan will reject him out of hand and be like, no, you're just a hallucination, I'm not actually guilty. And in fact, the devil is making Ivan feel more guilty through his long this nonsense. But at the same time, that's a tough reading to support. Because the devil doesn't talk about any of that. No, the devil is much more concerned first with convincing Ivan that he does in fact exist, and thus sort of catapulting Ivan into insanity. Like Ivan will no longer be able to trust his own mind if he is in fact suffering these hallucinations and believing in the devil, both because it offends his morality and because it offends his sense of reality. Like he knows that there are no devils, that the devil is not in fact talking to him. This would be succumbing to brain fever, succumbing to this hallucination. So the devil is not interested in convincing Ivan that he's guilty of his father's murder. Instead, he's convincing Ivan that he exists, thus sort of, or sort of undermining Ivan's faith in his own intelligence. But notice, as much as that is the devil's stated plan and the sort of central conflict throughout this chapter, it's really hard to tie that job, the, the conversation that they have here, to the overarching question, is Ivan guilty, is Ivan complicit? By contrast, the devil only serves to make Ivan look ridiculous. And I want to stress that. Like, this would be the logical, dramatic moment when the devil shows up and, you know, convicts Ivan of his, his crime and, and, you know, proves to Ivan that he's guilty but that's not what the devil's agenda is at all. Rather, what the devil actually accomplishes during this chapter is making Ivan feel like his confession is worthless. Which is striking. Notice, first off, I need to just say this straight out because, you know, you cannot talk about this chapter without emphasizing just 
as much as this is momentous and portentous and, you know, hugely important and Ivan's soul hangs in the balance and is he's waging war against his own sort of, like, brain fever and he's trying to overcome his own insanity by sheer force of will. Yeah, it's all very, very impressive. Has anyone noticed how hilarious this chapter is? How silly it is? How ridiculous the devil's stories are? Like, I love them! It's wonderful! Like, we get the axe, and, you know, like, the axe going around the earth, like, because it's so cold out there, and the devil's like, yeah, it's about 150 below in space, and, you know, you know how, like, even when it's 30 below, the village women will, like, trick these young boys into, like, licking the axe, and it's stuck to the axe, and they have to, like, rip their tongue off, and the devil is even like, yeah, if you even... In, Ivan's like, wait, so th there's an axe in space? And the devil's like, no, there's no axe in space. But I guess if there was, and it was 150 below, like, you would just touch it and your finger would fall off. Like, and then we get this whole depiction of, like, and that, yeah, if it was in space, and presumably it'd be, like, orbiting the Earth, and it's now one of the Earth's satellites, like the moon or something, and you can, like, predict the rising and falling of the axe. Like, it's so ridiculous, and it's so silly, and it's so absurd, and I laugh every time that I read that passage. Like, half the stories the devil tells are this kind of hilarious absurdity. So, I am the devil, and I was trying, and I was suffering rheumatism, and Ivan's like, how could you possibly be suffering rheumatism? And he's like, don't interrupt my story. So I went to see a specialist, and the specialist was like, actually, I'm a left nostril specialist, not a right nostril specialist. I need to go to Austria for this other specialist. So I went to this other specialist, and he was useless too, and finally I got like malted extract, and that was apparently what cured it right away, so I wrote to the newspapers, and I was like, hey, I have this story to tell about how I'm the devil, and how I got cured of rheumatism, and they're like, actually, we're not going to publish shit, because you are the devil, and we don't believe the devil exists. Like, this is Bulgakov-level hilarity and absurdity. Like, I love reading this chapter every time, because it is just so freaking silly. But that's all it is. Like, you keep waiting for the devil to drop some really important, really huge philosophical insight. We keep waiting for, you know, something Mephistophelian on the level of, like, Goethe's, you know, I am the force of infinite negation, or, you know, I am that force that eternally wills evil and eternally does good. And the devil quotes that, but never takes it seriously. Like, there's no moment where we see the true, despicable evil of the devil. Like, instead, he's telling us these stories about how he wishes that he would be incarnated as a 250-pound peasant woman and to honestly pray and leave, like, a kopeck before a candle burning for the saints. Like, this is a really small-scale, petty devil. It's not some incarnate force of evil. And Ivan even mentions to himself that that's part of what annoys him so much. He wishes he has some, like, grown-up devil to torment and cause him suffer. He wants Satan with the sooted wings. But instead we get this stupid, pathetic sponger devil who just tells silly stories and doesn't make any sense, and it's funny to listen to him. Like, this is one of my favorite portrayals of the devil in the entirety of literature, period. Like, again, you know, that class that I teach on humanities, I, I always teach the, the Brothers Karamazov in this particular section. And I emphasize how different this devil is from the, like, ginormous, scary devil at the center of the universe in Dante. Or, you know, the, the sort of trick 
tricking liar of Milton, or, you know, even, like, the Mephistopheles of Faust, or Dr. Faustus, or uh, the Master Margarita. Like, as much as there are all of these really cool devils in literature, as much as we do get this vast gamut between, you know, the pathetic devil of Futurama and Rick and Morty, and the, like, titanic forces of Dante and Milton, you know, here we have something truly unique. A devil who is kind of just this down-on-his-luck aging noble who is just a buffoon, who is silly, who is ridiculous, who is, in many ways, like Fyodor Karamazov himself. And that's part of what irritates Ivan, because this devil, in being like Fyodor Karamazov, indicates to Ivan that he, too, is like Fyodor Karamazov, because the devil himself is part of Ivan's psyche, because he is just a hallucination and not some actual figure. This section is silly. It's totally anticlimactic. We expect this big revelation, and we get nothing. We expect Ivan confronting himself and, you know, accepting his own guilt or something. But honestly, if he accepted his guilt, that would be good. Like, if Ivan, in fact, had this confrontation with the devil, and the devil was like, yes, you, in fact, are guilty of your father's murder, and Ivan was like, no, I am guilty of my father's murder, I was always wanting him to die, and I put Smerdyakov up to it. If, in fact, that happened, Ivan would be moved to confess. And if Ivan was moved to confess, then that would be it. Like, we would have that exuberant moment, the same moment that Dimitri had, where he gave himself up and he, you know, is the corn of wheat that falls to the ground and gives forth fruit. Like, everything would be better now. So that's not what the devil does. The devil plays a trickier game here. And I realize, again, we're in this sort of, again, crazy limbo, as we have been throughout this entire section. Is Smerdyakov feeling guilty, or is he just some nihilistic Disney villain? Is Ivan, in fact, culpable on some, you know, subconscious level, or is he, in fact, just putting it upon himself because of his own self-tormenting consciousness? The th next question we kind of are left asking is, okay, so is the devil real or not? And, you know, on the one hand, we have very clear evidence that the devil isn't real. Like, he's not there. Ivan, when in fact Alyosha shows up, Ivan notices that there, the glass is still on the, the table. He didn't throw it at the devil. The towel is still in the cup closet. He never took it out and put it on his head. So the entire conversation with the devil never happened. Like, it's not just a hallucination in the sense of, like, he really does hallucinate some being over on the couch. It's a hallucination in the sense of the whole thing was a dream. And Ivan doesn't even accept it as a dream. He's like, it can't possibly have been a dream. Like, it had to have been a legit hallucination. Like, legit, you know, personality disorder. Legit, like, John Nash in a beautiful mind. There was a person over there, and I was interacting with the person over there. Like, that's not what happened. No, he was just pacing the room. We see it. Like, he gets caught up in it again when Alyosha shows up, and it's just him walking back and forth, muttering senselessly. None of it happened. So the devil isn't real. It is very much just a figment of Ivan's imagination. It is really just a part of his own personality. But on the other hand, there are hints that it's more than that. Not in the sense that it is some, like, demonic presence, or it is, in fact, some actual devil. But notice there are moments of originality. Like, we get that great little bon mot at one point, um, where uh, the devil quotes Latin, and he's like, I am the devil, I, nothing human is alien to me. Like, he, he has that particularly great, like, Latin quote. 
Um, and Ivan even specifically says that it's new. Um, so this is on page 639 in our text. Uh, the devil, you know, he says, like, I caught such rheumatism last year that I still remember it. And Ivan's like, the devil with rheumatism? And the devil responds, why not if I sometimes become incarnate? Once incarnate, I accept the consequences. Satan sum et nil humanum ame alienum puto. And Ivan responds, how's that? Satan sum et nil humanum? Not too bad for the devil. I'm glad I finally pleased you. And you didn't get that from me. Ivan suddenly stopped as if in amazement. That never entered my head. How strange. But notice, as much as this is an indication this is in fact a legit real devil, the devil immediately convinces Ivan that it's nonsense. C'est de nouveau, n'est-ce pas? This time I'll be honest and explain to you. Listen, in dreams, and especially in nightmares, well, let's say as a result of indigestion or whatever, a man sometimes sees such artistic dreams, such complex and real actuality, such events, or even a whole world of events woven into such a plot with such unexpected details, beginning from your highest manifestations down to the last shirt button, as I swear even Leo Tolstoy couldn't invent. And, by the way, it's not writers who occasionally see such dreams, but quite the most ordinary people, officials, journals, priests. Notice... Ivan suddenly recognizes, hey, this is something separate from me. This is something bigger than me. I didn't come up with that. And the devil immediately tells him, no, people come up with lots of stuff like this in dreams. It is just you. Which is itself weird, because the devil is supposedly here to convince Ivan that he does in fact exist. And back and forth we go. The key here is that if you were looking for a consistent philosophy, if you were looking for a thesis, of the devil, you're not going to find one. It's not here to be found. The devil is a product of Ivan's insanity, his brain fever. It is just a dream. Like, when I talk about it for my humanities class, I do have a thesis here, namely that the devil is convincing Ivan that he is pathetic, that he is a mediocrity, that all of his ideas are ridiculous. It's why Ivan gets so upset when the devil brings up the Grand Inquisitor. It's why Ivan throws the glass at him when the devil starts quoting his own ideas at him. And notice the paragraph that causes him to do this. Um, the devil starts quoting not just the Grand Inquisitor, but the philosophy that we knew Ivan believed and had explained to various characters during this novel, but that we've never personally heard. That whole philosophy of all is permitted. So notice, this is on page 648 to 649. Um, the devil brings up the Grand Inquisitor, and Ivan gets really upset about it. I forbid you to speak of the Grand Inquisitor, Ivan exclaimed, blushing all over with shame. Well, and what about the geological cataclysm? Remember that? What a poem! Shut up, or I'll kill you. Kill me? No, excuse me, but I will have my say. I came in order to treat myself to that pleasure. Oh, I love the dreams of my friends. Fervent, young, trembling with a thirst for life. There are new people now, you decided last spring, as you were preparing to come here. They propose to destroy everything and begin with anthropophagy. Fools, they never asked me. In my opinion, there is no need to destroy anything. One need only destroy the idea of God and mankind. That's where the business should start. One should begin with that. With that, oh, blind men of no understanding, once mankind has renounced God, one and all, and I believe that this period, analogous to the geological periods, will come, then the entire old world view will fall of itself, without anthropophagy, and above all, the entire form of morality, and everything will be new. 
People will come together in order to take from life all that it can give, but of course, for happiness and joy in this world only. Man will be exalted with the spirit of divine, titanic pride, and the man-god will appear. Man, his will and his science no longer limited, conquering nature every hour, will thereby every hour experience such lofty delights as will replace for him all of his former hopes of heavenly delight. Each will know himself utterly mortal, without resurrection, and will accept death proudly and calmly like a god. Out of pride he will understand that he should not murmur against the momentariness of life, and he will love his brother then without any reward. Love will satisfy only the moment of life, but the very awareness of its momentariness will increase its fire, inasmuch as previously it was diffused in hopes of eternal love beyond the grave, well, and so on and so on, in the same vein. Lovely! Ivan was sitting with his hands over his ears, looking down, but his whole body started trembling. The voice went on, The question now, my young thinker reflected, is whether or not it is possible for such a period ever to come. If it does come, then everything will be resolved, and mankind will finally be settled. But since, in view of man's inveterate stupidity, it may not be settled for another thousand years, anyone who already wish knows the truth is permitted to settle things for himself, absolutely as he wishes, on the new principles. In this sense, everything is permitted. To him. Moreover, since God and immortality do not exist in any case, even if this period should never come, the new man is allowed to become a man-god, though it be he alone in the whole world, and of course in this new rank, to jump light-heartedly over any former moral obstacle of the former slave-man, if need be. There is no law for God. Where God stands, there is the place of God. Where I stand, there at once will be the foremost place. Everything is permitted, and that's that. It's all very nice, only if one wants to swindle, why, I wonder, should one also need the sanction of truth? But such is the modern little Russian man. Without such a sanction, he doesn't even dare to swindle, so much does he love the truth. And Ivan throws the glass at him. Notice, first off, the philosophy should sound familiar. This is Nietzsche's Superman. Like, it's it's so obviously Nietzsche's Superman in another set of, in another voice, in another aspect, that, like, we can point beat for beat the points in Beyond Good and Evil, the points in, in Thus Fake Zarathustra, that Nietzsche is saying effectively the same philosophical pr principles that Ivan is describing here. Now, I don't know if Dostoevsky had read Nietzsche. There's plenty of evidence that Nietzsche read Dostoevsky. Nietzsche apparently loved Dostoevsky. He thought he was one of the greatest writers of his time, even if he didn't necessarily agree with all of Dostoevsky's views, whether or not Nietzsche like, actually appreciated all of Dostoevsky's views. I've never seen evidence that Dostoevsky has read Nietzsche, but probably he was getting some of Nietzsche's ideas in some form through the various things that he was reading, through the various Russians who had read Nietzsche, distorted though it may be. At any rate... This is the same philosophy that we see in Nietzsche, and it's the same philosophy we saw with Raskolnikov, for that matter. It's the same philosophy that we saw with Kirillov and the, the characters in Demons. It hasn't changed. We've put a couple of new words into it, we have a new catchphrase, namely everything is permitted, but it's the same principle, that we are now in a new age, that there is a new man, and that new man is permitted to do anything, morality will not restrict him. And that's what Dostoevsky has been fighting the entire time he's been a writer. He has been emphasizing from first to last, from crime and punishment and even before and poor folk to some degree, like he's saying these people cannot in fact overcome their humanness. They think they are the man-god, they have the ideas of the man-god, but they're not. They fall flat. Whether it's Raskolnikov being tormented by his suffering and failing to go through with his plan to become Napoleon, whether it's Smerdyakov who ultimately kills himself rather than going through with his plan to go back to France, or whether it's Ivan who basically lapses into insanity because he can't reconcile his morality, implicit though it may be, with his ideas. It's ridiculous. 
And what Dostoevsky is emphasizing here by putting this in the mouth of the devil, and what frustrates Ivan about it, is that the devil quotes this fundamental principle of Ivan's philosophy back to him. And Ivan is disgusted by the fact that it is sitting in the same conversation, coming from the same mouth as the guy who was talking about the axe rising and falling and it showing up in Gatutsk. All of it is banal to Ivan. All of it is ridiculous. And I stand by that. Like, what I was arguing in my humanities class, I stand by. The devil shows up not to prove that Ivan is guilty of his father's death, but to prove that Ivan is mediocre. That his ideas suck. That he doesn't actually have some grand truth here. That it's silly and ridiculous and Ivan can't either live up to it or go through with it. This is not an impressive idea. It's petty and small. It's social Darwinism, or it's Nietzscheism, or it's just plain selfishness. It's what the Greeks would have called hubris. It's been around forever. It's not special, and it's not new, and it's not exciting, and it's not important. It's stupid and dumb, and it ignores the fundamental humanness that Ivan and Smerdyakov and Raskolnikov and Pyotr Verkovensky and Stavrogin and all of these characters of Dostoevsky have always, always shared. Namely, they have a human morality. As much as Ivan wants to be above virtue and morality, notice how excited he gets by just saving the life of that one drunk peasant in the snow. Ivan's moral compass points straight. And that's what's so frustrating to him. That he can't overcome that. That he can't be more than moral. Like his philosophy is supposed to say. He shouldn't feel guilt at killing his father, even if he did. But that same guilt, as flimsy as it is, is driving him insane. There shouldn't be any reason, according to his strict logic, for him to get upset about his father's murder, whether he was guilty of it or not, and yet he does. Even in his tiny little amount of complicity, he feels this terrific, psyche-destroying guilt. And on the one hand, that's all that the devil is here to say. The devil is only here to point out how ridiculous Ivan is and how ridiculous Ivan's ideas are. But I want to note the reaction. Because this is something that we don't get to talk about in my humanities class because we don't have the context to work from here. Notice that both Ivan and Alyosha react to the devil's presence in radically different ways. Ivan interprets the devil's speech as meaning something completely different from what the devil actually says and what the devil actually, you know, has in mind here. Notice, this is on page 653 in the chapter, He Said That, which I find especially important because, again, when he says, he said that, the implication here is it's the devil. He said that Smerdyakov had committed suicide, but the devil didn't talk about Smerdyakov at all. Like, I don't know exactly what sort of backwards, internal, like, unconscious logic Ivan is applying here. I suspect that we as readers are tempted to agree with Ivan. Say, well, if Ivan, you know, thinks that the devil was talking about Smerdyakov, clearly the devil wasn't. Did you read the same chapter? 
There isn't a single mention of Smerdyakov. The devil isn't interested in Smerdyakov. All that the devil is doing is pointing out how ridiculous Ivan is. You're going to have to do some pretty impressive logical cartwheels in order to get to Smerdyakov committed suicide from any of the devil's points here. Like, I don't know, maybe there is some sort of backwards logic, but I tend to think that we scholars looking at this passage give Ivan the benefit of the doubt here. We assume that Dostoevsky, like Smerdyakov himself, has been communicating secret information to us. Subliminal messages! If you read the book backwards while listening to The Wall by Pink Floyd, you can manage to get at what exactly Smerdyakov... No! It's not there! Like, I don't care what kind of numerology, apocalyptic interpretation bullshit you're par participating in. The devil does not give you any information about Smerdyakov and his suicide. Ivan reads that in. Because Ivan isn't out of the dream yet. Notice what he says here. It's on page 653. Alyosha emphasizes again. Like, they're talking about the devil. Ivan says, yes, but he's evil. He laughed at me. He was impudent, Alyosha. Ivan said with a shudder of offense. He slandered me, slandered me greatly. He lied about me to my face. Oh, you are going to perform a virtuous deed. You will announce that you killed your father, that the lackey killed your father at your suggestion. Brother, Alyosha interrupted, restrain yourself. You did not kill him. It's not true. He says it, he, and he knows it. You were going to perform a virtuous deed, but you don't even believe in virtue. That's what makes you angry and torments you. That's why you're so vindictive. He said it to me about myself, and he knows what he's saying. You are saying it, not him, Alyosha exclaimed ruefully. And you're saying it because you're sick, delirious, tormenting yourself. No, he knows what he's saying. You're going out of pride, he says. You'll stand up and say, I killed him. And you, why are you all shrinking in horror? You're lying. I despise your opinion. I despise your horror. He said that about me. And suddenly he said, and you know, you want them to praise you. He's a criminal, a murderer, but what magnanimous feelings he has. You want to save his brother, and so he confessed. Now that is a lie, Alyosha, Ivan suddenly cried, flashing his eyes. I don't want that stinking rabble to praise me. He lied about that, Alyosha. He lied, I swear to you. I threw a glass at him for that, and it smashed in his ugly snout. Notice, that's not what he was saying. This I can see the connection with. The devil is very much emphasizing, oh, you believe that you know, you're beyond morality, the virtue is beyond you, and Ivan leaps, leaps to the next logical conclusion. Ivan sees himself as, you know, as the devil as condemning him specifically for wanting to participate in this confession, wanting to come clean, this thing that would itself confess Conform to, uh, to the virtue of the day, conform to this conventional morality that Ivan, in fact, does harbor. And the devil says, you know, why aren't you believing in your convictions? You really think that you are doing something virtuous, but at the same time you don't believe in virtue? How does that square? I thought everything was permitted. I thought you were the God-man. I thought you overcame that virtue. I see where Ivan is going here, but notice that's not what the devil said. It's not about praise, and it's not about all of this sort of, like, back and forth. Yes, these are questions Ivan should be asking himself. Do I want to confess because I, in fact, want to come clean? Or do I want to confess because I want to appear noble before others? Or do I want to confess for any number of selfish reasons, which the devil points out? But the devil never brought up any of them. No, that's new. That's the next step in the argument. Because for Ivan, he's still having that argument. Alyosha showing up hasn't changed the situation. It's just complicated it. Ivan is still in the dream. He is still having the brain fever. He is still having his conversation with the devil right now, in his brain. 
he woke up from a dream, and like we do in dreams, we interpret what happened in the dream according to our circumstances now. We make sense out of the senseless. Ivan is doing this. He is trying to give this dream, which itself, as we saw, is just ludicrous, silly foolishness. Just anecdote after anecdote. Just the devil goading and being silly and being ridiculous and not making sense. And Ivan trying to make sense of it. And now he comes to this sens sensical interpretation. But we're already off to the races again. We're already in the midst of the dream again. Notice what, he's, what he says on page 654. Alyosha says, Brother... How could he have talked of Smyrniakov's death with you before I came if no one even knew of it and there was no time for anyone to find out? He talked of it, Ivan said firmly, not admitting any doubt. He talked only of that, if you like. And one could understand it, he said, if you believed in virtue. Let them not believe me. I'm going for the sake of principle. But you were a little pig, like Fyodor Pavlovich. And what is virtue to you? Why drag yourself there if your sacrifice serves no purpose? Notice he's pushing the argument forward. He's taking what Alyosha has told him, and he's adding it to what the devil said, and now he is making the devil's next series of arguments. The ones that we didn't see in the chapter. Ivan is describing it as though it's already happened, but it is in fact happening right now, in this moment, because he's still in the dream. Why drag yourself there if your sacrifice serves no purpose? Because you yourself don't know why you're going. Oh, you'd give a lot to know why you're going. And do you think you've really decided? No, you haven't decided yet. You'll sit all night trying to decide whether to go or not. But you will go all the same, and you will know you will go. And you know yourself that no matter how much you try to decide it, the decision no longer depends on you. You will go because you don't dare not to. Why you don't dare, you can guess for yourself. There's a riddle for you. He got up and left. You came and he left. He called me a coward, Alyosha. Le mot de legnim. To, sorry, my French is apparently terrible here, especially when I've got, like, enigma as the word I'm trying to pronounce. Le mot de l'enigme is that I'm not a coward. It's not for such eagles to soar above the earth. He added that, he added that, and Smerdyakov said the same thing. He must be killed. Katya despises me. I've seen that. Like, notice he's not making sense. We try to make sense of this. We try to give Ivan the benefit of the doubt, because, again, we feel that. We want there to be greater significance to what's going on here. But the truth of the matter is, there is none. It's a dream. It's Ivan eating himself, Uroboros style. His consciousness is devouring itself. The devil isn't there. He doesn't have some big philosophical point to make. The big philosophical point is what Ivan is desperately trying to reach because it's got to make sense, because it can't just be brain fever, because it can't just be silliness. But it is. He jumped up in a frenzy, threw off the towel, and began pacing the room again. Alyosha recalled what he had just said. It's as if I'm awake in my sleep. I walk, talk, and see, yet I'm asleep. That was precisely what seemed to be happening now. Alyosha stayed with him. The thought flashed in him to run and fetch a doctor, but he was afraid to leave his brother alone. There was no one to entrust him to. At last, Ivan began gradually to lose all consciousness. He went on talking, talked incessantly, but now quite incoherently. He even enunciated his words poorly, and suddenly he staggered badly on his feet, but Alyosha managed to support him. Ivan allowed himself to be taken to bed. Alyosha somehow undressed him and laid him down. He sat over him for two hours more. The sick man lay fast asleep without moving, breathing softly and evenly. Alyosha took a pillow and lay down on the sofa without undressing. Notice, Ivan is trying to give meaning to his dream. Just as we, for so many years in academia, have tried to make sense of this. We are convinced 
that there is something deep and meaningful and rich and truthful about Ivan's wrestling here, that Dostoevsky is communicating with us on some subliminal Smirnyakovian level. And he's not. We're trying to draw a line in the sand, say everything before this point in the narrative is something deep and philosophical and profound, and everything after this point in the narrative is gibberish and Ivan descending into insanity. Do you notice the ridiculousness of that position? That we are effectively saying here that the difference, that there is some hard, fast difference between the moment that Ivan is having a conversation with the devil and the moment that Ivan has lost his mind. Doesn't it seem more likely that Dostoevsky is making the point that all of that philosophical bullshit that the devil was spouting was itself insanity? That believing that there is truth to this Nietzschean philosophy of supermen, of transcendent morality, of godmen, is somehow anything more than a delusion? Like, we harp on this passage. We get all excited about the Grand Inquisitor. We get all excited about Ivan's richness and, you know, how Dostoevsky was in fact an atheist wrestling with his... No! Ivan is literally presented as though he's losing his marbles here. And somehow we take this for profundity? That says way more about us than it ever says about Dostoevsky or about Ivan. No, we're looking in the mirror and we're saying, hmm, that Ivan, he's really got some good points. No, he's raving! He's lost his mind! This is not intelligence. This is delusion. This is insanity. This is depression. We are legitimizing Ivan's mental illness here. We are saying, no, he's not sick. He's a genius! A tormented... No! No! He's sick. He needs help. He needs Alyosha to sit by his bed and help him. If we are to see anything truly profound about the transition that Ivan had, it was that moment when he saved the dude in the snow. That was the moment that Ivan felt lucid. That was the moment that Ivan felt exuberant. That's the moment that everything made sense in Ivan's head. And then the second that Ivan turned on that, rejected going to the prosecutor tonight when it desperately needed to happen, come clean immediately, no, we'll just put it off for tomorrow, that destroyed him. If there is a profound message to this section, it is that Ivan missed his chance. That because Smerdyakov is dead, the full remission of Ivan's guilt, the full remission of Ivan's sin, is never going to actually happen. The window closed. Ivan had a chance to come clean and fix everything for Dmitri, save everyone, including himself. He too could have been a corn of wheat fallen to the ground and giving forth fruit. And as it is, he will do that. He is committed, as we see here. He says, I am in fact going to confess... I am, like, that is already decided. And as much as that is the right thing to do, because the devil showed up and questioned it, because Ivan now interprets the devil as having questioned it, now Ivan will never sit at peace with that confession. It will never have practical value. It's not going to actually save Dmitri, because Smerdyakov is dead at this point. And it's not going to have personal value value for Ivan, because it isn't going to have practical value. Ivan will, in fact, fall to the ground and give forth fruit. But it's going to be a half measure. It's going to be way less strong 
been either Dimitri's choice to do that or Alyosha's choice to do that. And Ivan is not a genius here. Every part of the devil's speech emphasizes that Ivan is just a me mediocrity. That his supposed great ideas are in fact just trivial and nonsensical. And I think we as a scholarly community reading into it is kind of really bad for us. We are totally missing the point here. Dostoevsky is not out to tell us these grand truths about the human condition. And the fact that Sartre carried away everything is permitted and turned into the cornerstone of his philosophy is, if anything, an indication of how demented existentialism might actually be. And I say that being very sympathetic to existentialism. I like a lot of what Sartre has to say, and I like a lot of what existentialism has to say. But insofar as existentialists are convinced they can somehow get beyond human morality, I think Dostoevsky is absolutely right here. Nope, that's not how that works. Your freedom, your ability to define your own existence, doesn't change the fact that you have to be honest with yourself. That you have to recognize, no, there are some things that are just wrong. And even if you are nihilistic Smerdyakov, they will come and get you. You can't just do horrible things and get away with it. Admittedly, in our culture today, we tend to believe that a lot less than Dostoevsky did. We tend to think that there are plenty of horrible people out there who do get a good night's sleep. And maybe they do. But that doesn't mean that their consequences aren't going to catch up with them at some point. Maybe it's an act of faith, as it probably was for Dostoevsky. Or maybe it is, in fact, pragmatically unverifiable. Either way, I don't think it matters. Dostoevsky's conviction, at least in this novel, is very clear. You can't get away with it. You can't do evil or have justified bad behavior with big ideas. Ivan is not a hero. Ivan is not some genius. Ivan is not representative of what Dostoevsky actually believes. Ivan is losing his mind. And to agree with him is to basically lose your mind as well. So, stop. Stop! Stop now! But the other thing I want to emphasize is what Alyosha does with this encounter with the devil. Where Ivan blows it out to be bigger and bigger, more and more profound, more and more philosophical, and we probably should be leery of his attempts to make sense of this particular situation, though we should also recognize what truth there is to the fact that Ivan's consciousness is eating himself, and there is not going to be peace for Ivan. Let's Specifically look at how Alyosha responds. First off, notice Alyosha does in fact like accept the existence of the devil to some degree. Um, like he very much emphasizes that, you know, the devil isn't in fact visiting you, but he recognizes that he is that he is in fact suffering. Um, he keeps pleading with Ivan, you've got to stop, you've got to calm, you've got to, you know, you've got to take a step back, look at this more objectively, where Ivan is just being carried away by his, you know, passionate acknowledgement of what the devil actually means to him. But notice what I, Alyosha says here, after Ivan is in fact asleep, after he is in fact calmed down. Alyosha took a pillow and lay down on the sofa without undressing. As he was falling asleep, he prayed for Mitya and Ivan. He was beginning to understand Ivan's illness, the torments of a proud decision, a deep conscience. God, in whom he did not believe, and his truth were overcoming his heart, which still did not want to submit. 
Yes, it passed through Alyosha's head, which was already lying on the pillow. Yes, with Smerdyakov dead, no one will believe Ivan's testimony, but he will go and testify. Alyosha smiled gently. God will win, he thought. He will either rise into the light of truth or perish in hatred, taking revenge on himself and everyone for having served something he does not believe in. Alyosha added bitterly, and again prayed for Ivan. Notice... Ivan sees this as the struggles of an idea, something objective, some truth, something bigger than he is. Alyosha sees this as purely psychological, just Ivan. Alyosha isn't praying for society. He isn't praying for this new truth to reveal itself. He's not praying as Ivan theoretically would if Ivan believed in prayer, that he somehow overcome these obstacles and, and let the word of the new man, the man-god, be, you know, recognized all over the place. No, Alyosha stops with Ivan is struggling against his conscience. And Alyosha is convinced God will win. Ivan will either recognize the truth of his conscience over his ideas and rise into the light of truth, or he will perish in hatred. And in either case, God wins. This is up to Ivan. This is his free action. He can persist in his delusion and ultimately destroy himself, presumably by committing suicide. Ivan has already agreed to do that, after all. Or he can humble himself. He can become the corn of wheat fallen to the ground. He can recognize that not only is his confession the right thing to do, but also good for him. Ivan feels the need to confess. He does not yet feel the guilt. Sort of. He does not yet recognize that the guilt is right. Let's put it that way. Either he is going to recognize that his ideal was bad, or he's going to insist that his morality is bad. If he does the former and rejects the idea, he will rise. He will truly be a hero. If he doesn't, if he accepts the idea over his own humanity, well then he has no choice but to die. He can't reconcile his idea with his humanity. The idea isn't human. It is dehumanizing. In trying to become a man-god, Ivan is just doing the same thing that every Faust story and that every, you know, tale of hubris and that every Christian parable has been emphasizing from the beginning of literature. In trying to become a god, you usually become less than a human. You debase yourself. This is basic. This is so obvious. It's in Plato, and it's in Greek mythology, and it's in Aristotle, and it's in Boethius, and it's in, you know, basic New Testament Christianity, and in Augustine, and in Aquinas. Everybody agrees with this. Pagan or religious. Secular or, you know, sacred. Either way, at the end of the day, if you try to become something bigger than you are, you will ultimately destroy yourself. That's what Ivan is doomed to become if he doesn't humble himself instead. That's the truth here. That's the profundity. That's what Dostoevsky is communicating. Everybody 
in academia who is convinced that he's got something else to say is very much missing the point. This is the truth. And it's simple, and it's basic, and it's old, and it's human. We are not gods. We shouldn't be allowed to be gods. Unfortunately, we aren't allowed to be gods. We will ultimately destroy ourselves if we try to become them. Just as Ivan is consuming his own mind at this point. So next time, we will see the outcome. We're done with our Act 4 of this Shakespearean structure, and we're on to the big conclusion. Book 12, A Judicial Error. Um, as with Book 11, we're going to break it in half here. We're going to start by reading all of the text up until the end of the prosecutor's speech. Um, that's Chapter 9, Psychology at Full Steam, The Galloping Troika, the finale of the prosecutor's speech. Uh, so we're going to read the first nine chapters next time. It's like 60, 70 pages. It'll be a long reading, probably a long lecture as a consequence. But that'll leave us with the defense attorney's speech and the epilogue for our last lecture. Only two left, folks. That's all we've got. So next time we start in on the trial, all of our characters will reach their big moments and climaxes. We'll see whether or not Ivan, in fact, confesses and reconciles himself to his confession. We'll see if Dimitri is, in fact, let off the hook. There's a lot still yet to come in this big novel of big ideas. Um, and I look forward to talking to you about them soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Uh, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.